Hello, welcome to Loud in the Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm your host, Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show today Ismene Gazelis and Han Dorison, political scientists from the Department of Government at the University of Essex. So our topic today in today's show is conflict, peacekeeping, resolution, cooperation, governance after conflict, impacts upon women in particular. So Ismene and Han, warm welcome to the show today. Thank you. Uh, let's begin with your own interests and expertise. Tell us a little bit about our work, to, uh, your work, to set us up for the show today. Ismene. Uh, so my work is on uh, post-conflict reconstruction. Um, so I look, uh, study a lot, and some of my research is actually with Han on peacekeeping and deployment and their effectiveness in uh, uh, supporting post-conflict reconstruction. I also have uh, some interest on uh, gender equality and how that also Uh, can improve uh, post-conflict outcomes. Although recently I started looking at um, violent, um, using uh, explosive violence against women, which is a kind of a separate phenomenon, uh, not just in conflict zones. And I also have some interest in uh, communicable diseases, such as uh, it was HIV AIDS initially, uh, but also malaria. um, Okay. Great. Yep. Well, let's come back to some of that. Han? Well, as Mena uh, already mentioned, uh, we worked uh, together on our research on, on peacekeeping, and that's been a, a very big part of my work uh, for the last couple of years. Um, I think more broadly speaking, I've always been really interested in the various you know, instruments that, that countries political leaders um, have to kind of deal with conflict, you know, basically everything apart from the fighting and killing each other. So what can be done that kind of avoids uh, kind of the worst possible outcomes? Um, And so I've studied economic sanctions, whether they work, whether they can possibly work. I uh, examined the the role of trade and also kind of the networks that get created uh, because of trade. Um, and as I said already, the last couple of years, really kind of the role of peacekeeping in conflict um, and the role basically of foreigners. You know, you get a lot of interventions and you get peacekeeping forces, you got peace building organizations. Are these people actually trusted? Uh, mm. Are they welcomed? Mm. And what are the outcomes as a result yeah, of all does of it that? Help? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. so, so in common to both of your work and the collaboration has been understanding what's happening and then trying to help on, on, on working on how to in short, make things better to yep. to yes, to, uh, to improve cooperation, yeah. um, governance, uh, mm. uh, resolution, peacekeeping itself. Um, from that, well, well, let's let's begin with that that notion of peacekeeping, which is mm. which is kind of slightly old one because it is framed as a external inve- yeah. intervention, mm-hmm. largely, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about about what works and what doesn't work, and maybe pick up a couple of examples from specific locations that that would be in your mind, either to illustrate the good or the the perhaps the context where the wheels come off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it always kind of really started with, with almost like a puzzle, because um, you know, if, if you read stories about peacekeeping and specific cases, specific, specific environments, um, you know, very often the failures kind of get highlighted. Um, 
But at the same time, you know, if you do your scholarly work, if you kind of collect the data and, and look at the effects, there's a lot of things that, that seem to be working. Um, and very often at the most basic level, there is simply less violence. Uh, the parties are uh, better able to kind of reach a political agreement, you know. And, and also at the local level, there's mediation in local conflicts and they get settled. Um, and it all kind of sits these, this good news story sit in a, in, a, in a very big environment where things don't work, where, you know, at the market level, uh, well, there are the scandals that peacekeepers are involved in, or there's still conflict where the peacekeepers don't respond to effectively. So there's a lot of failure, but still, you know, there's some, there's a really kind of a bright spot. And I think that always fascinated me, like, you know, how can we reconcile uh, both insights? Mm. So perhaps our ears are more attuned, or the media's ears are more attuned to where things go wrong as to where they go right. I think that's definitely part of the story. Is it? Yeah. Is it? yeah. It's many. So um, I think I went into peacekeeping uh, because I was looking at how local populations respond to the presence of in foreigners intervening. And that's when actually Han and I attended the conference together long time ago and that's where we decided to work on our first project where we're looking at uh, peacekeeping actions and how local populations respond to these actions. But um, I think a turning point for me was in 2011 when I went to Liberia for the first time and um, I think Han is familiar with the story. I was watching a movie about the Greek Civil War, uh, which was one of the most devastating civil wars in, of the 20th century. Not many people realize that, but in terms of population losses, was it's up there. Uh, more so give us the dates for that. That was... Uh, 1944 to 1949. Hmm. So it was immediately after the German occupation and the end of uh, World War II. And in that was a case where there was no intervention. I mean, whatever intervention was financial to support the government, but no type of peacekeeping as we we can observe it uh, to, today. But it was a, a victory for the government with, and the implications were devastating for the opposition, but also the society as a whole. So, you know, growing up, my parents lived through the Civil War. So growing up with the narratives as well as their experiences, but also observing as a political scientist uh, who lives abroad, um, still the legacies. Um, and then that posed for me questions as to what happens if you don't have this peacekeeping. What is the alternative uh, or what we use in our language, we call the counterfactual. Um, whereas in, in, in Liberia, even though it's a very poor country, um, there I, there was some a different trajectory as to how the, 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 the leadership uh, coordinated to, to you know, move forward after the completion and uh, the projects they had with, uh, for example, women's organizations, uh, one of my areas of research. So the, 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 this too, that start making, pose questions for me that, that basically changed a lot also my research agenda, uh, even beyond the work that we have done with Han, where we, sh we clearly show that the presence of peacekeepers reduces violent conflict, but also like what happens afterwards uh, in terms of development, the type of uh, political systems that emerge, the type of economic systems that emerge uh, once you have uh, some kind of intervention that helps to... Uh, basically move the agenda forward. Yeah. And so presumably we are talking about the the building of institutions that, that allow for 
just daily discourse and cooperation at the local level, but presumably at higher levels within institutions. And that, that during and after conflict takes yes. hard work. Although I think, and we both, uh, um, like what our research had shown, that it doesn't have to be el- the interve- whoever intervenes should not be engaged in state building per se. Uh, we actually f- found that a minimalist approach sometimes is better. So in gaining security uh, is more important sometimes than trying to fix things, but create the conditions where local populations or local elites can actually converge and start rebuilding uh, their institutions. So this okay. is not a story of... I don't know, perhaps Afghanistan or or what the U.S. have tried to do, but more like enabling an environment where the local actors uh, can actually build whatever is theirs mm. and and drive that through through their own choices and Th- cultural right. yes. preferences and so forth. Although yeah. one can argue that what intervention, especially by UN, can do is shape a little bit those preferences by shaping what are the the acceptable based on international standards about statehood, uh, acceptable options. So going back to <laughs> the the example, uh, the, you know, Greece experience there was you had executions. So the movie I, I referred to ends with the execution of two um, illiterate uh, kids, teenagers. So that's not acceptable, obviously, by international law, or and that's something that peacekeeping presence can uh, constrain. Uh, and I think I think that can actually have a lot of impact, even though it seems very, very basic mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. I think the um, so our research really kind of emphasised what what happens at the local level. And so in a lot of uh, earlier research, but also I think in a lot in, in popular perception, there is this bias towards the capital, towards the, the, the engagement between the elites, the, you know, the different opposition and the government or the rebel leader and, and the, the government. This general or that or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of attention to what happens there. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, when the UN intervenes, it has to engage with these actors as well. And it has to make sure that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the peace is maintained in some form or shape. But a lot, a lot of stuff happens at um, at the local level. And so we really wanted to go into our research saying, like, well, can we kind of you know, tear that apart? Can we kind of move to towards, you know, what happens in villages, what happens in particular regions, how these regions are different? Um, and, you know, I think it's even in our separate research, uh, we kind of move more and more towards the micro. And at the end of the day, you basically just want to understand what these people in these villages are actually dealing with and how they respond to it. And so you, you, know, you go there and you interview people and you try to find out what the reality on the ground is. That's very interesting because it, it strikes me that a, a popular kind of language around around conflict is to talk about countries, mm. um, countries against countries or within countries, and still to be saying the conflict in Liberia mm-hmm. or in in um, Palestine or in Congo, as if it's a single thing. But you're saying you need to get, to, for reconstruction, you need to get much more local to, to build it back up. But it, what's happening in this village is maybe going to be very different to what's happening and, in that one. And- yeah, it's very often, you know, it really gets, it, it's observed, but not quite often fully recognized that how random almost violence can be. You know, like one village on, on one particular hilltop, you're completely devastated. Lots of people get killed. You know, you, you drive 10, 15 minutes, you get on another hilltop and you can't see anything. 
And so to understand why is that why is there so much variation? I think that's a real puzzle for for lots of us. And you can have multiple conflicts uh, in a, in a given country. So there's no that's as you said is is correct that when we study conflict, we don't look at one country and say the the conflict in uh, DRC, for example, Congo. But there could be multiple conflicts with either the same or different uh, actors uh, that, that happen simultaneously. It could be external, it could be in, uh, domestic, but in different areas. Uh, so, so this is like a much more complex uh, world in a way. Um, and, and of course, solutions will flow from that understanding that would be different when talking about, you know, framing it as a national thing. Yeah, and and I think even looking at the UK, you have so much regional variation and the same thing applies to most countries. So are we right in, I don't know if this is a correct observation or not, but in the last 70 years or so since the the Greek conflict that you mentioned, there have been very few examples of countries invading other countries. Maybe the Ukraine one is one of the very few that most conflicts are emerged within mm. countries i mean there's this yeah. you know it's a previous phase when when imperial efforts took people from into specific territories other territories but most have been within countries yeah. is that right or to some extent it depends uh, what you define as a country well perhaps, yeah. no it yeah. is correct that that might start but it's what we call internationalized uh, internal conflicts so in 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 a way in Lib- since i mentioned liberia uh, west africa is a very good example because or drc where you have uh, other countries being involved because they support local actors um, and then the whole conflict might start in a particular area, but it expands in the whole region. Yeah. Mm. But if you even think of uh, World War One, it was an internationalized uh, internal conflict, mm. right? It started with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but then it became World War One because the external actors got involved in something that was uh, could have been domestic. And that's a common feature of many conflicts now is external actors That's secretly right. or directly Iraq or other kinds of operations that and then you have these in, 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 interactions that are not uh, and that's how we don't study I mean the way we study conflict is we're looking at actors and what is the actual dispute and that that's why it can give us within as I said the same country multiple conflicts at the same time because mm. we don't have this big categories that don't really describe accurately what we observe on the ground. Very interesting. Mm. But at the same yeah. time, of course, it, it's, it's interesting because you, and <clears throat> I noticed this sometimes in my own research, you, it becomes a, quite a thin line between, you know, interventions that may be done for the good or, you know, with, you know, quite good words or ideology behind it. But at, at, at the end of the day, are still, you know, an intervention. There's a lot of military force being used and you can clearly see kind of the interest of the intervener, uh, you know, be this, you know, the United States in Afghanistan or, or you know, even more blatantly Russia in, in the Ukraine. And you want to distinguish those from more, I mean, you know, more legitimate interventions where kind of the international community comes together and basically recognizes that, uh, you know, vulnerable populations need to be protected or where there is a vacuum and, and something positive can be done. Yeah. Yugosla- and, ex- old Yugoslavia, yeah. for example. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. I think that's what makes UN peacekeeping different from other forms of intervention. Um, not that the 
a lot of times the, secure, the UN Security Council that has to approve uh, a mission does not have the members, especially permanent members, might not have their own agendas. Um, but at the same time, um, there is a bit more of rounding. It, it, it becomes more of a broader agenda that kind of minimizes uh, the, the pure direct uh, self-interest of the interveners. Mm. Mm. Uh, um, but it's an interesting, uh, we're talking now about UN peacekeeping. Um, it's actually a limit. It has been a limitation in terms of missions recently, partly because of disputes that uh, between the U.S., China, and, and Russia, and that has, especially after Libya, and that has actually constrained the ability of the UN to engage the way that it did in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah. So there are cases, you know, most famously, I guess, Syria, where you know you see an enormous amount of bloodshed and atrocities. And at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of intervention, but it's not coordinated. It's not yeah. kind of loses its purpose. And uh, yeah, but a very, very limited role for the United Nations. Yeah. So could we go to um, the role of women in mm. in reconstruction or, well, first of all, impacts upon uh, women within communities and, and countries, but then how you can use networks, contacts, uh, localization to help build um, post-conflict, not just resolution, but reconstruction, I suppose. Mm. What, what kinds of observations would you make on, on that? So the women, especially in civil wars, um, they can play quite interesting roles, um, not only by participating, they also participate often as combatants, whether they're forced or voluntarily, that that is though something that is observed. Uh, but very often in this context, the men are the one who are targeted, and therefore men very often try to avoid getting out. So it's the women who will go out and do business is the, or they're left alone and therefore they have to care, uh, uh, care for their families. So they will start uh, trading. Um, and this is when I'm talking with very patriarchal societies very often. And these, that can create networks. Uh, now, one thing that I have studied in Liberia, and speaking of variation within a country, Liberia is a tiny country. Uh, and yet, uh, it was a lot of difference in different areas in terms of uh, pre-existing networks of women. Um, even in subsistence agriculture, they had um, a, a, what they call a social system where they will support each other. And these pre-existing networks uh, led to stronger women's organizations that either supported their communities or at the end became a form of mediation network between uh, Charles Taylor and um, the rebels. And uh, actually, there's a lot of work uh, on, on the, their participation in the negotiation process, whereas other women uh, in, in other parts of the country, uh, there was there were no such networks to begin with. So they can play a very diverse set of roles. Uh, and it's not uh, and this role and these networks and eventually contribute uh, either in mediation processes or eventually can lead to um, some form of uh, de development projects uh, and therefore work with their communities. And that's where I research a little bit uh, meets the work of uh, development economists who actually look at the different ways that they can build institutions by working uh, with uh, locals. Mm. And, and does, that, does that change? I'm interested in the, that that's immediate 
transition from conflict to mm. some sort of post-conflict. Um, do some of those changes last for a long period of time? I'm thinking about the institutions that build the the norms, I suppose the friendships that people might build as well, which which becomes somewhat mm. resilient to these other threats that some, legacies of yes. that some of them will be long. So actually that's where external intervention can be a hindrance or it can be supportive. Mm. Some of them do survive, others do not. I will say, based on my uh, experience, the most recent uh, groups and organizations that did not have a very good um, footing on the culture of the country were the most uh, superficial in a way, and therefore I don't expect a lot of them to have a long-term impact. But that's where interventions can perhaps support, create more support for these networks to survive long-term, uh, or as I said, they might create conditions that actually these networks go nowhere. I mean, this is, I mean, the, the the role of of women in you know in in conflict and post conflict is is really complex and, and as Mayn already pointed out it's it's very easy to become overly general you know women play all kind of different roles but there are indeed you know situations where in the immediate aftermath of conflict you know it can also be you know you can get problems for women and so and one of them is that uh, you know the fighters or the combatants or the men basically return home. Um, with very often, you know, trauma, trauma experience and, and all kind of awful things that happen to them. And I guess also relations that have been under massive amount of strain. And so you see a lot of domestic violence. So I studied uh, Timor Leste mm. and, uh, you know, and, and not with a particular focus on that, but it's so blatant uh, that it very often comes, OK, this is a part of the conflict that you really have to be aware of. Oh, really? And very different to prior to the conflict. It was it yep. very obvious that that wasn't a continuing... Uh, well, everybody says or and and people some people have studied it much more yeah. intensely than I have but that that they also have the evidence that it, yeah the problem got worse right there um, is actually recent research that suggests that there's a backlash uh, especially if uh, changes in the position of women in society is imposed by external actors uh, and there's a backlash especially against uh, female politicians um so it is, and as I said, this is a relatively recent research that uh, has shown that that's a, uh, that's a, a scenario that can be observed. Mm. Well, there's been a backlash within Afghanistan, hasn't it? I mean, the, the that's female politicians a, yes. weren't put in place by external that, agents. The right. conditions were created, but there yeah. has been difficulty there, hasn't there? Yeah, of course. There's, but this is also because the, you know, the Taliban is, you know, is kind of famously about having very strict uh, ideas about what women and, and men should be doing in society. Um, in, you know, in, in, for example, a society like Timor Leste, that, that's not so obvious, but there is a kind of an, un, you know, it's a patriarchal society. There's kind of an understanding that men are, you know, have some kind of a privileged position, you know, and, and, and in some cases there is, there is a certain vulnerability. I mean, and again, I don't want to simply associate women with being vulnerable, but for example, a practice that very often relatively young women would, would marry into, a, you know, into another village. So basically, the kind of the contrary mm -hmm. story of what, what this Mena was saying, kind of women are taking out of one particular network and then kind of having to find a way in another one. Um, and, that, and that can be difficult. I think, you know, it's easy to imagine how that can be difficult. And then, you know, when things are not going very smoothly, um, then it can be, you know, it can be really dangerous even. And this, this is quite often framed as sort of ex-combatants. Mm. Con a context here, which you've described for Timor Leste, yep. of people coming back, and then what happens is quite often domestically here in the UK has been framed around um, 
suffering from PTSD, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of acute um, sensitivity that people have to conditions mm-hmm. in conflict and then returning. And I've spoken to lots of people and seen that shorthand and um, people are largely left to their own devices to kind of cope with it. I mean, the military says, fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> you've yeah. done your bit. And, and there are other kind of piecemeal efforts to try to make things yeah. make things better. But are there ways that, have there been interventions to to work with ex-combatants that have worked in that kind of way? And again, I think it would be right to say, it all depends where we are. Yeah, 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 yeah no. Yeah. But, but are there I mean, some generalizations about the I sorts mean, of things? There are, I mean, there are real well, some countries, and again, I think Colombia in this case is a good example, where you know there is a there's well there is an extensive reintegration program, and contrary to a lot of other countries, this is relatively well documented and and, and traced. You know, the research that I read about it and, and participated a little bit in myself, I mean, it, it has a positive impact. Now, it doesn't always mean that everything is brilliant, but it, at least it's better than it that it could mm-hmm. have been. Uh, and I think kind of recognizing that you know the interventions can can help. These are kind of you know not just a peacekeeping force, but these are kind of direct intervention with people that, that need it. Um, but, you know, obviously we're talking very often about situations where there's, a, you know, there is a lot of deprivation, there's a lot of poverty, there's only that many jobs to go around. Jobs don't always go to people mm. that actually deserve to get the jobs, but it's the connections that matter. So, there's a, you know, these are difficult situations to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you, you have to be kind of, you know, a bit cautious about what you could possibly expect uh, to happen. And. In Liberia, on the other hand, I mean, there, there has been research on uh, reintegration of ex-combatants, and I believe, if I remember correctly, there's not much evidence that it did uh, make a difference. And almost 20 years after the the end of the, the conflict, the war, um, you still have what they call the motorcycle boys, uh, the, the young, well, not anymore young, but... Uh, for a while, young males uh, gathering around, uh, having motorcycles uh, with uh, unclear prof- any kind of prospects. Um, and it makes you wonder, like, if you don't have any intervention, what could happen with these uh, young men and uh, how they can be mobilized in a negative way? Now, Liberia is an interesting case because the UN was present uh, for more than 10 years uh, at the request of the government. Uh, so there was uh, the, the, there was a strong presence, and it was uh, scaled down very progressively. So it wasn't any exit, uh, sudden exit. So that might have contributed. But it's an example of, uh, as Hans said, you have Colombia. That was a more successful case, and other cases that are not very successful. Hmm. So what what does mediation look like then in some of these contexts? How how do you describe the things that work well um and i mean it's very difficult clearly yeah. you've described the, the the wider context for this um uh, how do, how how can you frame mediation to help that sort of social reconstruction i mean reconstruction as a word quite often appears to mean bridges and roads and mm-hmm. physical infrastructure rather than social infrastructure or even psychological yeah um, that's true uh, the, the the two of those Tell us a little bit about kind of mediation and how that works and how effective it can be. Um, I mean, the, in my own research, and, and, and somewhat contrary to what I said previously, that research really kind of looked at, at the central level. Um, but there we found that it, 
you know, it is important for peacekeeping. And it was kind of the, the, the maybe kind of a limited uh, insight, but we thought it was quite important because there was so much literature that looked at mediation on the one hand and looked at peacekeeping as something completely different. And very few people were actually thinking like, well, a lot of these times these things happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we found for other feeling quite convincingly that actually if you didn't have mediation you know there wasn't much that peacekeepers could uh, achieve e- uh, either and so the the mediation kind of almost takes a central role and i mean this is something that i guess and nobody- Ihan, if i may like you can't have a peacekeeping mission unless you have some kind of agreement yeah right so yeah. that that's a very fundamental thing to understand like yes we have conflicts like the un is not involved but there's no agreement yep. so there's nothing to keep Yes. And this goes even yeah. further because it's, you know, getting the agreement in place so you can send the peacekeepers one thing. But then also once these peacekeepers are there, you need to kind of keep the parties around that agreement. And it has happened quite regularly that the agreement kind of falls apart and the peacekeepers are there. And from a, you know, relatively benign presence, it becomes uh, basically soldiers, people that shoot as well. And that's not particularly helpful. So I think perhaps peacekeeping in a lot of people's minds is this rather um, uh, incorrect view that there's just a line in between two areas of conflict. Mm. But it's here the peacekeepers with the blue hats and there's one lot and here's another lot between them. Um, and and that's obviously not, not the case if you're uh, thinking of something much more. Or is it a bit of that? It keeping is people correct. Apart, yeah. Originally, that's yeah. how it looked like. Yeah. So you still have like a Cyprus or um, uh, Kashmir and... Um, Azerbaijan, Armenia. And Golan Heights. Mm. Uh, so that's how it looks like. But that was what we call the first generations of peacekeeping. So now we are like in six and moving onwards <laughs> generation. Fast moving. <laughs> Fast moving. Um, and initially, the, the whole point of peacekeeping was to, to work with states. So this involvement of uh, UN peacekeeping in this complex conflicts that involve uh, domestic and international interventions of uh, different countries is something relatively historically relatively new. Uh, and hence, the concept has changed dramatically, as well as the kind of man- what they call the mandates, the kind of tasks they're supposed to, to perform. Uh, and they become these very complex missions. And that's what is also very difficult to evaluate them, because it's not clear what success or failure looks like. Uh, I mean, it's easy to, for us, because we look at um, uh, levels of violence, to say, okay, you have a reduction of how many people die in an area that peacekeepers are deployed. But beyond that, what success and failure looks, is it can be very murky and difficult to and that's why I think there is a perception that they fail because we don't have a baseline to compare mm. I got maybe a kind of a good you know example at the moment so like an, an old-fashioned peacekeeping force that uh, was actually in place in in the eastern Ukraine so before um, of February last year and you know there was from the OECD so a European organization and they had a fairly limited role in kind of observing how much shooting was going you know back and forth and, and try to minimize it if any way possible now you know, clearly, that didn't stop uh, Russia from getting more involved in eventually invading Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, it created also a period of, of relatively calm in that part of the Ukraine. Um, and so even there, it's like, well, 
did they do any good in those six, seven years that they were there? Or was this a complete failure? Because ultimately it led to a Russian invasion. And then there's even a further question, because we start thinking about, okay, what's going to happen next? And, and, and how could we possibly imagine a, a political resolution to, to the war in the Ukraine? Well, wouldn't we still not need some kind of observing force or, you know, just to, for, for both sides, and I guess particularly the Ukrainian side, to have some confidence in what they're signing up to? Yeah. We'll speculate a bit about that. I mean, we have no idea how it's going to no, end up where we No, but if I might add, yeah. going back to the, your original comment, Ukraine, most people think, as an invasion by Russia, but it was a civil conflict in Ukraine. So, again, this is an example of what we call the internationalized uh, civil wars. Uh, so it bubbled up in that one way and then the yes, external yeah. agent... So, and, and so a lot of conflicts are like that, yeah. so... Um, it's Which not makes the, it much more complicated. That's right. Yeah. Somewhere like Ukraine, where people speak Russian and Ukrainian together, and now that even that has become a sort of cultural right. war, hasn't that's it? That's right. So you have this kind of um, schisms, or uh, what we call the th- that's that's what defines what the type of conflict we observe, whether it's over the government, the state, and how it's organized or about the territorial independence or autonomy of particular regions. Mm. Would you speculate a bit about Ukraine? What do you, with your, with your, I mean, it's a terrible question, I know, it's awful, because we're in the middle of something, and it could go in many different directions. But having observed getting on for a year of, of what's been happening there, and with, with your knowledge of, of conflict zones, and, and reconstruction and peacekeeping, and you look at that, what, what, what's at your front of your mind? I mean, with, I think, with what we know. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing, and I, I, I guess what I'm looking out for, but I think even also uh, other people in the international community, is you know when does this conflict really get stalemated? So when mm. do we see that that for both sides it's very difficult to to really change anything on the ground? Um, and well, you know, we don't seem to be there. You know, and I, it's quite interesting how often people already have speculated, also in the media, like, oh, now it seems to get stalemated. But you know, there's still room and and, and things at going the hyper local level. Yeah. much is still happening. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, and I think that you know that I think that's kind of crucial because we, you know I think once both sides realize, uh, you know, what it is that that the military can get for them and what it cannot get for them. I think then they, they, they probably the, the minds will get focused on okay okay how do we now basically get out of this mess um, and uh, yeah to some extent you know it, it, I don't think it's particularly helpful that Ukrainians still you know think that they can get the whole of the Ukraine back um, definitely not simply you know from without regional control I mean you know imagine all kind of things but obviously I think it's definitely not helpful that Russia still think it can win this war it's basically replace the regime in, in Kiev yeah yeah. I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think that's the. I completely agree with that, that kind of assessment. And uh, but all wars end at some point. Yeah, with some sort of with some sort one compromise way or, the, or mediation or or actually or, not all. Or as yeah. uh, Hans said, is at some point it's too painful for both sides yeah. to continue, uh, unless of course mm. they want to. Mm. Completely sacrifice themselves, but mm. but even there, I mean, you know, you know, sometimes you know the the eventual outcome is very loopsided because one side has you know, clearly got the military control, but almost always there is something to negotiate for the other side, um, and you know it may be about often you know protecting the elites. You, you saw this at the end of the of the Second World War. 
um, you know, in in Japan, for example. I mean, you know, there was still something left for the Japanese to negotiate. Um, there was something left to negotiate for for for, for Germany and and even you know, kind of for the Nazis. So there's always something there that you can at a given moment say, okay, now we have to sit down and and, and we kind of clean up the mess mm. uh, that we find ourselves in. And then going back to peacekeeping, it is possible that we might see some kind of mission now. Again, that I don't think could be something from European Union or something from the UN with uh, China, for example, now has become increasingly uh, an active uh, contributor of uh, peacekeeping forces. So there might be something like that uh, after an agreement, but it has to be an agreement first. Yeah. Well, let, let's draw this together and I'll ask you to kind of look forward a little bit. Um, uh, as you've said, the, the solutions are hyper-local and differ according to different circumstances, but there are some kind of generalizations that you've drawn around kind of um, the types of conflicts and the types of reconstruction and rebuilding and hope, I suppose, that kind of comes out of that. If you're if you're looking forward from here, I don't know, five or ten years, mm. um, what sort of recommendations are in your Mind. I suppose recommendations implies there's a place for them to land, but general <laughs> observations, because there are multiple places, as yeah. you rightly said, um, for governments, NGOs, charities, development assistance, international cooperation, your kind of hopes for mm. the future. Are, are you kind of optimistic that as we have learned more about these details, as you've researched these, that your yeah. ideas as to but how to... I just want to say, though, even though we look at the hyper-local, it's also the hyper-local always li links back to the national. So we shouldn't forget that uh, um, that's important. It sets the conditions. Uh, that's right, said. yes, yeah. uh, the scope. That um, I, I think that my research at least suggests that despite these limitations and problems, UN performs some things better than any other organization that we have right now internationally. So therefore, and it's at a very small cost. Uh, people don't realize, but the uh, UN budget is for peacekeeping is what six point seven billion. Mm -hmm. It's it's tiny, tiny f compared to global military spending. Or um, you so buy a few tanks for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there is an at least in a minimalist uh, context, it works. So whether that will create uh, pathways that uh, certain things might work better than others in different contexts, I I'm, I'm personally believe that improving human capital like education, health, they can go a long way. Um, even I have done a little bit more recent work that um, it can also support uh, the quality of elections over a long time. Um, then that can lead to a better instruments that we have. Not not that end will, we will end conflict, but at least better instruments to um, help societies to recover from conflict. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think. It, I mean, you know, you know, it's difficult if, if you're you know talking about a global situation where you know there's clear opposition between you know global superpowers and and, and you know which very big risks, but also really undermines what the UN can do. But you know, there are. You know the positive things in the sense that there, there has been, and, and to a certain extent, still it is a lot of economic development. And so, there, you know, for a lot of people in the world, the situation improved massively since since the in this millennium. 
Um, and you know, we know that a lot of conflicts, and particularly the conflicts that we study, the civil wars, the you know, the, the grievances in parts of the country are very often driven by by economic grievances and economic inequalities. And so, massive gains have been made. So you see massive gains in Asia. You see really massive gains in Latin America. Actually, also in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the biggest risk is that everything gets started, you know, being viewed through the lens of, of super, superpower competition, which is very easy for, for rulers to abuse. Like, oh, we don't like, you know, what the Americans or the French are doing here. Oh, let's go, you know, in bed with the Russians uh, and, and just play out these different groups against each other and ultimately just enrich yourself. You know, it's the only, the only beneficiaries are the bank accounts in Switzerland. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating conversation. Han Dorison, Ismeni Gazelis from the Department of Government here at the University of Essex. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.